US President Joe Biden announces the withdrawal of the US military from Afghanistan by the 11th of September this year. The process of succeeding Angela Merkel as Germany's Chancellor continues will delve into a complicated time in German politics. And as patrons return to the UK's pubs and watering holes this week, we'll ask whether the huge demand for social spaces after the UK's latest coronavirus lockdown has put a temporary halt to social spontaneity. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 14th of April and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. And with us today to discuss the day's news are Monocle's culture editor Chiara Romella and Monocle's news editor Chris Chermak. Chris, Chiara, great to have you both with us on the programme today. We are at the middle of another week, so how are things shaping up there? After the, sort of the start of a rather big week in London, Chiara, let's start with you. Well, Really enthusiastic, I've got to say. It's a big week because obviously there has been a quite significant loosening of lockdown restrictions here in the UK and life really does feel different when you walk down the street. Um, You know, shops are open, life is back on the street truly and it's been cold, but it's not been too wet. So people have graced the outdoor terraces of restaurants and of pubs, of of which, you know, more later, I'm sure we'll discuss at length. But it has been really quite, you know, heartening to see kind of the streets buzzing a little bit again. Though I have to say that a couple of days ago, I did walk down towards Oxford Street and it was a mixture of like relief and horror at seeing Oxford Street at seeing Oxford Street essentially back to its usual state. It was like, right, things never change, but also gosh, things never change. You know, it's it was a mixed state of emotions. And Chris, you've mentioned several times about your desire to get back on the tennis court uh, when lockdowns are eased. How's the tennis elbow holding up for you there in this first week of the easing of restrictions in, in the UK? Thomas, on that note, I have to say that we missed you last week, so I was wasn't able to, you know, provide you with my weekly update on my tennis game. We were thrown into complete chaos here. I ended up hosting on Wednesday with uh, with Paige and Fernando. Chiara was on a different day. I mean, it was just, you broke up the band, man. I don't know what to say. <laughs> but um, in terms of my tennis, I have been very active, yes. I, I actually had my first uh, proper sort of group uh tennis training uh, last night. I am very, very sore, but it's good. It's a good feeling to actually be in pain again from actually doing some proper exercise. So uh, I'm feeling good. Well, everyone can take a nice big deep breath because the band is back together. Chris Chermak and Chiara Ramella, great to have you both with us on the programme today. Well, we begin in the US, where Joe Biden has announced that US troops will be withdrawn from Afghanistan by the 11th of September this year. And on today's edition of The Briefing, Scott Lucas, the commentator on US affairs at the University of Birmingham in the UK, explained for us why President Biden was making this move now. Yes, I mean, it's a big bet with the domestic population in that, you know, folks in the United States may not know that much about the complexity of what is going on in Afghanistan in 2021, but they certainly know about that marker of 9-11. But Andrew, I think it's an equally uh, bigger gamble, perhaps even a greater one in terms of significance, 
setting yourself this timetable to withdraw all the U.S. troops from Afghanistan with no real clarity on where we are about the attempted political resolution in Afghanistan. Scott Lucas there speaking to Andrew Muller on today's edition of The Briefing. Chris, to begin with you and to put that same question to you, why is President Biden making this announcement now? You know, it struck me listening to that clip uh, to go back to uh, Biden's Democratic predecessor, Obama. It's quite striking, isn't it, that when Barack Obama entered office, he made it his goal to get out of Iraq. And that was the the sort of key foreign policy issue at the time. It was exactly the same question that Scott Lucas was asking right there and then, like, what is the plan? What's going to happen when you leave? And what's also, of course, interesting is that Iraq was, you know, the one, the, the war that many of us probably remember more is more in the public consciousness. And it's sandwiched between Afghanistan, isn't it? Because Afghanistan has been going on now, um, you know, for in terms of the U.S., obviously Afghanistan's own problems uh, well predate the U.S. as well. But in terms of the U.S. role in the conflict, you know, it's it's going to be going on almost 20 years when they do leave on the anniversary um, of September 11th. And, you know, the other thing that struck me, though, in terms of Joe Biden, um, I was watching or listening a little bit to a senior administration officials sort of setting this up yesterday. And he just had this quote uh, to simplify the explanation saying, we went to Afghanistan to deliver justice to those who attacked us on September 11th and to disrupt terrorists seeking to use Afghanistan as a safe haven to attack the United States. We believe we achieved that objective some years ago. And I found that quite striking in a way because it, it just it just set this very narrow goal in a way, in a way. And it also makes you reflect on, you know, just what the war in Afghanistan um, has become for the U.S. Uh, over the last few years. You know, Joe, Joe Biden uh, in the campaign, I was also uh, listening to an interview where he quite bluntly had this quote uh, where he basically said, this is on CBS, that he would feel, quote, zero responsibility if the status of uh, women in Afghanistan and others who suffered, uh, you know, human rights abuses as a consequence of the U.S. leaving. His quote, his quote he kind of turned it around and said, are you telling me that we should go into China, go to war with China because, they're because of what they're doing to the Uyghurs? And, you know, it was a very strong, uh, some would say very uh, 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 unnecessary, obtuse statement about the state of Afghanistan. But it also just struck me the, the way that the politics is in the U.S. right now, I, I find quite fascinating in terms of the debate between liberals and conservatives and who stands where. You know, this, this was George W. Bush's war, the war he started, you know, before... Iraq. And at the time, um, even if they didn't always admit it, there was more of a goal than just uh, U.S. safety and security. You know, this was the time of neoconservatism, as, as it was talked about back in the 2000s, where the goal was this idea that the U.S. could create the conditions for democracy um, in other countries, you know, whether that was Afghanistan or in Iraq. Uh, and it sort of strikes me that now that's been flipped a little bit because it's actually the Democrats, the sort of the left, the liberals that in this case are questioning Joe Biden's decision 
um, by saying, you know, we have a role to stay here to kind of help Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, Im- improve the society, if you will, in Afghanistan, that this should not be just about security issues. And it's Joe Biden um, kind of going back to uh, what I would say is more of a traditional conservative, you know, realpolitik line of just saying, look, we have security goals. Um, as long as we're meeting those, we can't do any more than that. Uh, and, you know, it, it's just striking. And in that sense, I think he's quite, he, he's trying to sort of take this very uh, narrow middle line in politics. Um, and it's, it's, it's tricky, you know, at the same time also because, of course, rather fascinatingly, we shouldn't forget that it was Donald Trump who started us on this path of leaving Afghanistan and his motivation in some ways, oddly, also wasn't that different, was it? His point was, what is the U.S. doing there? We're spending all of this money and troops uh, on a war in another country. It was very much in this isolationist uh, stance, you know, a sort of non-interventionist stance. But in, in some ways, Joe Biden is doing the same thing, or at least he's just saying, you know, we, we, we just can't be that policeman for the world in every conflict uh, the way that some might expect us to be. And it'll be interesting in that sense to see where he goes from here, I think, since he's laying down a marker with this. What is going to be his uh, rationale in the next four years for other conflicts? You know, as things emerge, where is he going to see a rationale to go in? Is he going to take a human rights rationale along the lines of a Bill Clinton or even Barack Obama in Libya, for example. Um, in other cases, is he going to take that line or is he actually going to be quite the, you know, narrowly focused, almost more like a Donald Trump in some ways of saying, you know, we're only going to uh, engage uh, U.S. troops in conflicts where we see a U.S. national security interest. So I think it's going to be interesting to see sort of what the Biden doctrine, if you will, is going to be. And Kiara, as Chris alluded to there, there'd been a significant amount of commentary leading up to President Biden's announcement today that the withdrawal of US troops would be a mistake. How is the announcement being received in Europe, which largely allied itself with the US in the military invasion into Afghanistan following the terrorist attacks on the 11th of September back in 2001? Well, Thomas, I'll respond to you starting as usual with my home country of Italy, because it is the country where I monitor the press most closely. And whilst there are uh, articles in today's news about, um, obviously, this decision, it really didn't make front-page news. It really isn't a major item of discussion in terms of foreign policy, which I think is very interesting because it does reflect, to a certain extent, I think, also the approach that many of the allies did have with regards to the war in Afghanistan, Many uh, countries were involved for a very long time, but after the initial involvement, which happened at a time when, you know, the circumstances felt completely different and it looked like it would be almost jumping on a winning bandwagon to join um, US forces, uh, when that clearly became not the case and the conflict elongated, um, the amount of press that then followed across in, in Italy, I, I talk about specifically, for example, truly diminished quite radically. And Afghanistan, I think, has become, at least in perception for most people now, the US's war. Sure, the US were 
the ones that were most involved. But interestingly, I read reports today that um, there is on the ground at the moment in Afghanistan double the amount of uh, personnel from NATO than there is in terms of US troops. So it's interesting that NATO is still very much involved. uh, And yet we think about this as a, I guess, a US problem. But it's also interesting to note that in terms of Italy, for example, um, this was quite a big war for Italy. Um, Italy was the fourth, at times, fifth, um, I guess, contributor of, of most troops to the conflict for years. And it really, according to certain reports that I read today about, I guess, um, Italian foreign policy, it was a conflict that shaped um the Italian army in modern times, I guess there just haven't been as many quite as significant uh, foreign involvements for a lot of different um, European countries that have shaped the the, you know, the, the, the real, the, the, the true backbone of the army in the same way. And uh, and I think that over the course of the years, the, the, the press on the situation shifted because it did f- focus only on losses and casualties and it did focus on the amount of money that was being lost and I think from the point of view of the allies that 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 conversation that Chris was having just then which is this idea that you are ensure that you're either ensuring your own security or being this sort of peacekeeper in the world that becomes more starker and starker once it it feels like the, the the national security element withdraws more and more in in the consciousness of those allies that do take part in the mission. So I would say that the average Italian consciousness of the Afghanistan war considers it very much a thing of the past already, because it really has kind of withdrawn from people's perception of where involvement currently is. Whilst in reality is very much still an active situation, which is what makes, in in many ways, Biden's decision such a, such a controversial one, because it is, I guess, arbitrarily deciding that enough's enough. <laughs> but the situation is very much still an active one. Well, next here on the late edition, the upheavals of the coronavirus pandemic have had a particular impact on Germany's political life. The race to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor, who steps down later this year, is well underway. And moves are currently in play to centralise Germany's response to the pandemic, which has been managed state by state thus far. Well, to explain some of the more complicated facets of German politics at the moment, we spoke to the journalist and columnist Tanit Kosh on today's edition of The Briefing. This year has seen less dullness than usual because we've had actually something um, hardly ever sort of seen for a couple of years now, which is um, dodgy payments to uh, members of parliament of both um, the Conservative Party, CDU and CSU, uh, which cost them massively in the polls and a couple of MPs had to step down. And this has not been seen for a couple of years, though, the last massive scandal involving people in parliament. The columnist Tanit Kosh there speaking to us on the briefing a little earlier today. Uh, Chris, where are we at this stage in the leadership race to succeed Angela Merkel as Chancellor in Germany? I mean, Thomas, if you thought Afghanistan was complicated, I think uh, we can only turn to German politics and the leadership race going on right now. It's very complicated to sort of sum up all of the different moving parts in this, but it is quite fascinating for people that are in into German politics 
uh, if I can put it that way. It basically comes down to two people, Armin Laschet, who is the head of the Christian Democratic Union, and Markus Söder, who is the, the head of the Christian Social Union, which is basically the like sister party of uh, the CDU in uh, Bavaria. Now you have this Markus Söder, who in that sense is quite a, has in the past been quite a conservative uh, firebrand, if you will, especially, as I say, in the refugee crisis. But he's also then remade himself over the last couple of years. Um, he's turned into quite an environmentalist, for example. And it's made him really the the second most popular politician in Germany, just about behind Angela Merkel herself. What's interesting, of course, is though these two still don't really get along. Angela Merkel <laughs> doesn't really like Markus Söder. The Christian Democrats, uh, at least the top brass, don't really like Markus Söder. So what's that leading to now? Well, they're all standing behind their candidate. Amin Laschet, he was just elected head of the Christian Democrats earlier this year. This is one of those rare, unusual circumstances where it's actually the Bavarian sister party's leader who is more popular, but at the same time is not a consensus. In the rare other cases where the CSU took uh, took the leadership, uh, if you will, became the chancellor candidate, um, that was actually just before Angela Merkel uh, took office. And interestingly, I might just highlight that as one point that I find quite interesting in this that was the last time the CSU had a candidate was the chancellorship before Angela Merkel. They lost that race. Part of that was because Angela Merkel herself was not seen as particularly charismatic, was not seen as a strong leader at the time among Christian Democrats, was not seen as somebody who had the ability to win elections. And so I don't want to say that that's, you know, that that's what Amin Lashid has going for him because, you know, everybody is different and it's hard to say whether he's that candidate or not. But it does make you think at the same time, you know, sometimes it's the manager and the competent person and not the, the populist, the popular candidate that actually has the staying power. So it it's very hard to say what's going to happen here, to be honest. I just, I can't really say which way it's going to go. I find it in that sense quite fascinating. The only final endpoint to say is this is really helping the opposition. The Greens in particular are actually the party that is in the ascendance at the moment. Could this lead them to even become the largest party in uh, in uh, in German politics? Unlikely, but the longer that this discord goes on, who knows? Well, finally here on the late edition, the sounds of clinking glasses at pub beer gardens and the whirring of workout machines at gyms in many parts of the UK returned this week in the latest round of the relaxation of lockdown measures in many parts of Britain, which came into effect on Monday. But with some pubs, for example, reporting thousands of booking requests for their outdoor spaces, are we experiencing a temporary halt to the spontaneity of social interactions? Uh, Kiara, I'm not sure if you've popped your name on a waiting list for a spot at a beer garden, but does it feel to you from your vantage point in London that the slightly ad hoc joy, I suppose, of meeting with friends in a particular space is on hold for now as everyone tries to reclaim pieces of those spaces that have been closed off to so many of us for the past year or so? 
There's no doubt that that's the case, though perhaps it will come as a surprise to you, given my, you know, nonchalant attitude, that actually I have been truly an organisational machine in all of this. So I have about eight restaurant bookings for the next two weeks because I was just waiting for this moment to come and I've been plotting in the background for the last few weeks. But I will say that obviously... There's a clear loss in terms of people's ability in London to live this spontaneous life, which is part of the joys of life. And I think when we think about what we really suffered from during lockdown from a mental health point of view, it was the serendipitous encounters that we really lost the most of because you can arrange a Zoom for a, with a friend but you can't replicate the joy of kind of casual conversation in the office with people that perhaps you wouldn't make an effort to call and you wouldn't. Everything that we had to do during the pandemic was extremely calculated and came with a huge amount of pre-planning and worrying. And so it feels like that attitude is actually translating into our free time now. And that in, in you know, from, from a mental health point of view, I think that it's kind of just prolonging this attitude, which, you know, obviously it's better, but it is interesting that it's... It, to some people, it has been very, very stressful and lots of people haven't booked anything because they don't want to continue this sense of kind of forcefulness in their life. Um, I will say that I think beyond the immediate constraints of the pandemic and perhaps this rush of bookings will eventually subside when people feel like they've had their fill. But we can look at it with a long view from the point of view both of hospitality but also from the point of view of culture. When you think about how many venues, how many small venues particularly, will have to shutter after the longer closures, how many will survive. It's often those smaller venues that do provide a space for people to have spontaneous nights out because at the big venues you have to book your tickets months in advance. Whilst it's the small neighbourhood venues that you know you can rock up to and they do create that sense of adventure in the night out. So I do worry that overall we are moving towards more of a model in which everything has to be booked in advance. And this has been the case in London for a very, very long time. Uh, London is a particularly kind of pre-planning city, I think, compared to many others, certainly compared to Italy. So when I first moved, I was shocked that you had to book theatre tickets and concert tickets and you couldn't just rock up and buy one on the door kind of thing. Um, but I, 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 I hope that... I, I will try to be positive and hopeful and, and I guess not pessimistic and just say that I think there is such a hunger in people to have that experience that certain restaurants, certain venues will actually maintain a certain amount of seats for people who like walk-ins. Even now, there are certain pubs that have already adopted this model because they know that that's also what makes pubs great that's what makes them sympathetic places don't they feel welcoming to you because if you go to a restaurant five times and five times you're turned away you're unlikely to want to try going there again so you do have to maintain this face of welcome openness to people and sometimes that does mean taking a bit of a risk and keeping some tables open but it, it does have a, a real effect on I think building community and friendliness around you too.
And Chris, the idea of the the smaller adventures of going to a neighbourhood pub or a restaurant, as Kiara so beautifully outlined there, isn't actually just confined to sort of pubs or restaurants, is it? Being in a physical office space, meeting someone for a date, for example, the spontaneity of those experiences have also been really challenged in quite significant ways during all of this, haven't they? Well, Thomas, as somebody, uh, as a representative of the very opposite side that Kiara was just describing of herself there. I have booked nothing as of yet uh, for this week and the tennis uh, training that I talked about yesterday, I booked uh, or I called up two hours in advance of the training itself. Um, Yes, I think to your point, uh, and as Kiara did eloquently speak of there too, there is something to spontaneity. And and the only thing though that I would add perhaps is that, uh, to put it in a way, also an optimistic side to it, I do think there is still plenty to go around. And so I think my plan in that sense, and it's the same thing if you're on a a date or going with a friend, you know, my plan on the weekend uh, is to take, is probably to take uh, my bike with a friend, go around a neighborhood and, you know, you can play it like musical chairs. I mean, just, just find the pub that has free seating outside. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be... Um, you know, the in place, the place you've always wanted to go, that can wait for another time. At this point, just support your local business, support your local restaurant or a place uh, that, that still has a seat open and hasn't been fully booked yet. Well, the ever spontaneous Chris Chermak and Chiara Rumella, thank you both very much for being with us today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Our studio managers today at Midori House in London were Steph Chungu and May Lee Evans. Many thanks to them, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But before then, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a little earlier today. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.